Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning. How many of you have ever had glasses or corrective lenses in your life? Yeah? Okay. Some of you still have them, I can see by looking out. Some of you still have them, which is fine. Um, I've never had to wear glasses. Uh, my, I've got some reading glasses. Like sometimes my eyes get really tired. And last year after I had that concussion, I definitely had tired eyes sometimes. And, and reading books with small print, I'd have to wear glasses sometimes. But generally, I don't have to wear glasses, which is kind of a, a definite gift in a family where I am the only one <laughs> that doesn't have to wear glasses. Um, but... You know, this is, I chose this as the cover for the bulletin today because part of what we're talking about in the chapter that we're reading today is our vision, it's clarity. It's being able to see clearly. Um, when I was a counselor at a summer camp one year, I was playing a game in the woods and I had this strange, silly, very dumb moment where I was standing in the woods and there were kids coming that were gonna chase me. Well, they were chasing me. And I guess I was taunting them, all right? So I was standing, waiting for them to get close and then I would just turn and I'd run away. That, that was the plan. And, uh, and so they were getting close and I turned and as I turned to run, there was a tree branch with a stick and it was sticking out and I guess I was just close enough that I was looking far away, not close, and when I turned to run, the stick went right in my eye. And, and then I closed my eye on the tree branch. So it stuck in my eye, closed my eye, and I went, oh, and I broke the tree branch off. So I just had this thing sticking out of my eye. And it hit me in the eyeball so hard that I could not even tell what was up and down. The world just spun around. And so I thought, I'm going to just sit down because I have no idea anymore what is happening. Anyway, so I had this thing. Just, I just had to go to the emergency room then take the stick out of my eyeball. And so now, though I can still see just fine, apparently if you look at my eyeball with whatever machines they use to look up close, there's a crater in my, what's the black part? Is that a pupil? Yeah, there's a crater in my pupil from that stick that just right in my eyeball. Hopefully down the road that doesn't cause any problems. But what a story. And the people that were standing around me, just a stick sticking out of my eye. So anyway, in that moment, I could not see clearly, right? And it took a little while for my eye to heal up till I could see clearly again. Sometimes when we come to Scripture, we look at this stuff, we read this stuff, and sometimes it's very clear. We look at it and we go, I can see what I have to do. I can see what it's telling me to do. I can hear the Holy Spirit through this thing that I'm reading. I know the way that I have to live. 
I, I feel convicted in the ways that I have to change, right? Sometimes that's what we feel when we read this stuff. Other times we come to it and we read it and we go, I don't know what I just read. I'll read it again, but <laughs> I, it seems like, I know it's English, but it, it's feeling like Greek, right? We have no idea. There's no clarity there. So what we're going to get into in this chapter is a lack of clarity. Don't feel bad when you come to Scripture and you feel a lack of clarity. Because one of the things that we're going to see is that there were people who walked and talked with Jesus, who were taught by Jesus, and they had a lack of clarity. They sometimes could not even tell what was up and what was down, right? The world was spinning for them, and they didn't even know what was going on. So we are in Mark chapter 8 this morning. So if you have your Bible, grab that, pop it open. If you don't have a Bible, they're in the back of the chairs in front of you. If you want to get your Bible app out, go for that. We're just going to go ahead and read kind of a section at a time. We'll talk about it, and then we'll just keep going. And this chapter starts out with another massive miracle that Jesus does. And last week we did Mark chapter 7 and we read it backwards. So let me just remind you that the last thing that happens in Mark chapter 7, though it was the first thing we talked about last week, the last thing that happened was that Jesus went on a really long journey with his disciples. Okay? He spent a lot of time with them. And one of the things that we said was, Probably what happens when you go on a long journey with people is you talk, you teach, you get to know each other. Jesus is investing in his disciples on that long journey. And we are about to see some of the fruit of that investment in this chapter. There's a bunch of stories that happen in this chapter. We're going to see some of the fruit from that. All right. So let's just jump in because there's a bunch of ground to cover. Chapter 8, verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Well, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. 
Now look, this is not the first time that we have seen Jesus encounter a large crowd and feed them, right? How many people did he feed last time? Anybody remember? 5,000, okay? And, and to be fair, it's even a larger crowd than 5,000 because the last time this is mentioned, it's 5,000 men that are counted. So it's probably more than 5,000 people that were counted, uh, or that were, that were there and present. So there's 5,000 people last time, 4,000 people this time. Jesus' ministry is always marked by compassion, always. So as these people have come with Jesus, Jesus recognizes that if he sends them away, what's going to happen? He mentions it. He says, if I send these people away, they're never going to make it to their destination. They will collapse on the way there. We need to do something about this, disciples. We have to do something about this. What good would Jesus' message about the kingdom of God about the reign of God, about the love of God, about the, the movement of the kingdom have been if he sent these people away and they keeled over. How good of a message would that have been? Not very good, right? Right, are you with me? Not a good message. Okay, so he says we need to do something about this. If I am preaching that God is moving that the kingdom is here, the kingdom is near, and yet we're ignoring the needs of the people in front of us, this is not a good message. So we need to do something. And just like the last time, the feeding of the 5,000, how do the disciples respond? They point out, we're in a remote location. This is, this is impossible. There's, there's no way that we can find enough food to feed all of these people. But here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember three words. Compassion commands challenge. Compassion commands challenge, okay? Jesus says, what do you have to give? It's just like last time. This is the same thing. Jesus is reminding them this is the same thing. It's not different. The disciples are in the exact same place still. Jesus, this is impossible. Jesus, and Jesus says, well, what do you have? It's not impossible. What do you have to give? And they say, well, this is what we have. This little bit is what we have. And what does Jesus do with a little bit? He makes it enough, doesn't he? He stretches it till it is everything that is required and more. It's incredible. This is the miracle. It's amazing. It does exactly what is needed and more. Now, here's something that I think is really fascinating, very interesting, that I think is important for us to recognize. Last week, we talked about how there was a woman who was not Jewish that came to Jesus and asked for a miracle to be done, right? And something that set this situation apart was that Jesus... Jesus had come for God's people, for the Israelites. And in some of the other accounts of this woman coming to Jesus and saying, my daughter needs your healing power, Jesus had said, I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel. No, we're not gonna give what is meant for God's children to the dogs, right? And we talked about that. What if this is the opening of a door to Jesus's now ushering an expansion into the Gentile world. 
Because there's something very distinct about this miracle versus the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark. And I'll tell you what that is. The word basket is different in this miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, than the feeding of the 5,000. So when the food is expanded and filled up in the baskets and distributed, and when the baskets are brought back with all the extra, the word they keep using for basket in both miracles, written by the same author, is a different word. And in the feeding of the 5,000, the word basket describes what a Jewish man would be carrying. Basket. What they would commonly be carrying to carry their food and their belongings in. That's the basket that is used in that miracle. And in the feeding of the 4,000, that word is the word basket that a Gentile would use. It's like a hamper. It's the same basket word that was used to lower Paul over a wall. What if the feeding of the 5,000 was feeding of 5,000 Jews? And what if the feeding of the 4,000 was feeding 4,000 Gentiles? What an incredible way to usher in God's kingdom for the Jews and God's kingdom for the Gentiles. Now, do I know that for sure? No, not at all. But there is something to be said that the same author is using two very distinct words, probably for a reason. And I think that is incredible. That the bread of life, Jesus, the bread of life, is literally feeding 5,000 here and 4,000 here, using a Jewish basket here and using a Gentile basket here. And we know that for sure. Has the faith of the Syrophoenician woman opened a door that moves beyond just the Jews? It's incredible. It's possible. It's common now. We get into this idea where this miracle has been done. People have been fed. Jesus has dismissed the crowd. And the Pharisees come up to him and they want a sign. And we have this whole dialogue where Jesus is like exasperated. He sighs and he's like, I'm not giving you a sign. Why does this generation always want a sign? It's common for messiahs to appear. Something that we see through scripture is this expectations of lots of messiahs to appear. Messiahs appeared regularly. People that claimed to be the messiah would appear again and again and again. And when they appeared, they would often promise huge signs. And those signs would be things like city gates would fall, the Jordan River would be split in two, huge, massive signs, okay? So the Pharisees are demanding that sort of sign. All right, Jesus, we see you do these miracles. We see you do these healings. We see you do these casting out of demons. And they're saying, these aren't really the kind of signs the Messiah would do. Show us a big sign. Show us a real sign. And Jesus says, ah, why does this generation always want a sign? No, no sign will be given. Because for Jesus, to say that a sign is something that he is going to do would be like saying that God is coming from somewhere else and breaking into this place. That God is up there, somewhere, out there, away from here, and needs to come here. But 
That's not what Jesus has been preaching and teaching and showing them. What Jesus has been saying this whole time is that God is here. Literally, Jesus is the incarnation. God come in the form of man. He is here. And as he gives these parables, as he's been teaching about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus has been saying again and again, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. And so what does he say? He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Well, a mustard seed isn't something up there, out there, away from there that has to come here. A mustard seed is something that is already here. The kingdom is here. What else is the kingdom of God like? It's like a treasure in a field. That's not something out there, away from there. That's something that is commonplace here. The kingdom of God is like a man with two sons, right? The kingdom of God is like a pearl of great value. The kingdom of God is like a woman who's searching for a lost coin. A kingdom of God is like a lost sheep. The kingdom of God is like leaven in bread. The kingdom of God is like a net thrown into the sea. Everything that Jesus has been teaching is like, hey, the kingdom is already here. It's in this place. I don't need to show you that it's somewhere else breaking in. What I'm trying to show you is that it is here right now. And if you don't have eyes to see and ears to hear, that's on you and your hard heart. I'm trying to open your heart and open your eyes and open your ears to show you it's here. You don't need a sign. I am the sign, and you're missing it. Are you with me? No sign will be given. Those who are looking for a sign are missing the very, very good news that Jesus has been already trying to show them. The kingdom is here. So Jesus sends the Pharisees away without a sign. Let's pick it up in verse 14. The yeast of the Pharisees in Herod is the this section title, at least in my Bible, now, the disciples are about to get really myopically focused on something. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? We'll pause there. It, it's got to be hard to be a disciple of Jesus and have Jesus look at you and say, do you have a hard heart? Are your eyes unseeing? Are your ears unhearing? Those have to be hard words to hear, right? At the same time, as disciples of Jesus sitting in this room, 
Those are words that we too need to hear sometimes. If we don't ever hear those words, I don't know that we're actually being honest with ourselves. Okay? At this moment, what we have is a failure to learn from experience from the disciples. They forgot bread, food, sustenance, and they are worried that they're not going to have anything to eat. That's what they're focused on. Despite the fact that they just witnessed a miracle where Jesus took nothing, almost nothing, and fed 4,000 people, right? Despite before that, having been through a miracle where Jesus took almost nothing and fed 5,000 people, you and I do the same thing. We're all guilty of it. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are also forgetful. There are times in our lives where we forget the illnesses that we have recovered from. And we become sick. And we get very frustrated and very angry with God. How have you done this to me? How have you let this happen to me? I thought that I had given my life to you. I thought that I was doing the right things. I thought that I was saying the right things. And we forget God saw us through the last one and the one before that, right? We forget about the last unsolvable problem that was solved, right? We forget about the last irreconcilable relationship that was reconciled. We forget about times of happiness that followed awful times of sorrow, especially when we're in a time of sorrow. When we're in a time of temptation, we forget about the last time of temptation when we did not fall, when God gave us the strength to see us through temptation. When we are feeling down about falling to temptation, sometimes we forget that God has redeemed us, that there is no unredeemable sin, that God has redeemed us, that we are not unredeemable. But we get stuck in the idea that perhaps suddenly we've done something that has gone too far across the line and now, now we're too far gone for God. And though Jesus can feed the crowds of 4,000 or 5,000 with the, the pittance that is in our pockets, we get focused on the fact that we forgot our bread, right? That's what the disciples are in right now. They're in this sort of spiral moment where they've witnessed the feeding of the 4,000, witnessed the feeding of the 5,000, and they have forgotten their bread. And, and we can look at it and go, boy, that's so silly, but we do the same thing, my friends. Do we not? Yes. We do. We do. Okay. 
And so Jesus looks at them and says, guys, are your hearts hardened? Are you trying to forget what I've shown you? Are you trying? (laughs) Is it accidental? Or are you trying to forget what I've shown you? Think about the the kids' devotional that was just read. Are you trying to forget? Right? You should be more worried that you don't fall into the trap of the yeast of Pharisees and Herod. That's what you should be more worried about. To be less worried about the bread you forgot, disciples. Be more worried about falling into the trap of Pharisees and Herod. Yeast. Yeast is a bad word to the Jews. Right? Because the Jews eat unleavened bread. They don't eat bread that has risen. So for Jesus to say, watch out for that yeast... That's a, that's a bad five-letter word, okay? And so they have to think, well, what's, what's the yeast? What's the, what's the yeast? Sin. It's not just sin. But what do the Pharisees and what does Herod pursue? What do they use religion to pursue? Power. Power. And, and what is it that Satan tempts Jesus with in the very beginning of, before his ministry starts? But power, again, Power. And what is it every time that Jesus does a really huge miracle in front of really huge crowds that Jesus really tries to guard his disciples from the crowds who are getting riled up about? Power. Because the crowds get worked up and they want to make Jesus the king, the Messiah. And Jesus dismisses the crowds one way and sends his disciples the other way. Because That is not what Jesus is about. It's not about using all of this for power. But Herod is about power. And the Pharisees are about power. Jesus is saying, look, be less worried about forgetting your bread. Be more worried about falling into that trap. Because Jesus' way is not power over. Jesus' way is a Messiah, not with a sword, but with a cross. And, and he is about to spell this out so clearly in a moment. And the disciples, specifically Peter, are gonna push back hard because they don't understand. And I'm gonna tell you that I think there are people today that still don't understand this. Still, and this is one of the reasons why we have to hear when Jesus says to us, are your ears closed? Are your eyes closed? Disciples, are you listening? Because Jesus makes this so clear, but some of us are still not listening, okay? So keep going with me here, okay? Let's, let's keep going. Jesus heals a blind man at Beth- Bethsaida, and, and there's some linkage here I'm going to show you that is, I think, so cool, all right? But I want to keep moving through this because I know there's some food downstairs, and I, I, I feel that, all right? I, I smell it. My belly's r- grumbling a bit, all right? So 22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Uh, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the 
man's, when he spit on the man's eyes, <laughs> I wanted to make sure I read that right, um, and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Pause. Now, just a couple things to say on this. One, I want to say again, I said this last week, I'll say it again. One of the first things he does is he takes them away from the crowd. Right? I think that's such a neat thing. Again, this is not supposed to be a showy thing. Jesus is not trying to be... Uh, you know, fog machines and lights and do this showy thing on a stage in front of a whole bunch of people. Jesus takes this guy who needs healed, he pulls him away from the crowd, and he does this private thing, okay? That's neat. Um, and, and one of the things we see in this miracle that is interesting is that it's like his sight comes back to him in stages. Fascinating, fascinating. Is it because Jesus is tired? Is it, is it like, is this just too hard for Jesus today? Like he got up and he's just like, oh, I've got like a sore shoulder, a sprained finger. And so like, like my, my spit's just not like 100% today. So I just can't quite get this one right. Like what's the, no, of course it's not that, all right? Like it's not that. There's a bigger picture here. And so I, I wanna, there's a bigger picture I wanna make some connections for you, but I, I gotta wait to do that. So let me just, let me just say this. No one sees all clearly in one shot. No one understands everything in one shot. I want, I want to say that because that's huge. When you come to know Jesus, you don't know everything. You don't see everything. You don't understand everything in one shot. It's a process, isn't it? And that's one thing that I love looking at this story and being able to go like, okay, so he saw something, but not everything clearly in, in, the, in the first moment. And then he began to. It was a process. And that's so important for all of us to know. And that's so important for all of us to understand about everybody else. As Christians, we tend to be so judgmental of one another. I don't know why. Like, we know what it's like to come to Jesus and go through this whole process of trying to understand ourselves and him and work on our lives. And then we, I don't, we know how hard that is, and then we tend to be so judgmental of everybody else going through it. It's so silly. We should stop it, but this should be clear to us to show us it's a process, right? So no one understands everything in one shot. This is an important lesson for us to consider as we share our faith, as we consider raising our young in the church. No one understands everything. As we consider welcoming new members to the church, right? Or new participants in the church. People don't want to become members. They just want to come through the door and they want to find a new church to make their home. No one sees everything. No one understands everything. No one sees everything clearly in one shot. It takes time. So let them have their time, right? We walk with them. It's slow, okay? We have to be patient. And when the guy says, Jesus says, hey, do you see? And he's like, eh, it looks like trees walking around. Jesus isn't like, I give up. I'm out, right? No, but sometimes that's what church does. Somebody walks in and they like, they're here for a month or two months or a year and they don't act the way we think. And we're like, them, ah, they're beyond hope. And we, want, we just like, 
what, we abandoned them? Come on. We're patient and we give our all. We put effort in the endeavor. It's silly for us to abandon it. Jesus is like, okay, you see some trees walking around. Let's get in there. We'll keep going, right? I mean, I'd hope he didn't do that, but you know, you know what I'm saying, right? Okay? It's not like a curly mo kind of thing either, but Jesus keeps at it. Jesus doesn't walk away, okay? Neither should we, okay? You with me? Okay. I hope that's the kind of church that we are, the kind of community that we are. We stick with it. That's what we should be. That's what it means to be loving and caring, compassionate, merciful, patient. This is what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit present in a community. This is what it means. And not to abandon people because they suddenly don't conform to what you think. And if you start having in your head that they're not conforming to what you think, you're already in the wrong place in your head and in your heart. You need to back it up. All right? You need to check your heart. Are you with me again? Because it's easier to say that right now. All right? Than when your heart's in that place. I'll tell you that right now. All right, let's keep going. Um, we're going to come back to the blind man in a second, though. All right? Jesus is, uh, Peter's going to de- make a declaration here. Where am I at? All right, verse 27. Um, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around uh, Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, you have to be thinking to yourself too. Like, Jesus has to be thinking to himself, have I been successful in my mission? After all this time, in all these places, with all these people, casting out demons, healing the sick, teaching, sharing parables, spending long nights and long trips with my disciples. Have I been successful in my mission? I've moved with the people. I've taught. I've called disciples. I've loved people. Have anybody understood who I am? Have they seen God and what we've been doing? And so Jesus literally puts it to the test. Who do people say I am? And, and then not just people. Jesus makes it even more specific. He looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? You who have been closest to me, walked with me, who have heard the inside information, who've had the chance to say, I didn't understand the parable. What did it mean? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. So Jesus had not failed. Jesus had not failed, which is great. But then Jesus looks at them and says, okay, now don't tell anybody what I mean. I mean, don't tell anybody what you just said. Don't, don't tell a single soul. And we have to go, okay, but why? This is your inside group. Why would you tell them not to tell anybody? And, and, and I think... 
A big part of this is because now Jesus has to make sure that they understand who Messiah is. What, what is Messiah? Messiah is a title. Christ is a title. Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name. It wasn't Joseph and Mary Christ had a baby named Jesus Christ, right? Christ is a title. Messiah is a title, okay? That's something that was applied to him, okay? What is Messiah? And we have, it's hard for us to always understand what we think they understood. We can easily say Jesus is the Messiah who came with a cross and not a sword. And that gives you some basic idea. The Jews were once a mighty people with a great king, and that king's name was David. And, and everyone that came after David kind of had their downfall until the Jews were kind of carried off into exile. And once they were carried off into exile, the Jews were always under someone's thumb or under someone's foot, if you will. It might have been the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians, but then it was the Greeks and eventually it was the Romans. And so now it's been the Romans for a while. So the Jews had prophecies and beliefs. And that belief was that a Messiah would come. And eventually the word Messiah and the word Christ came to mean the same thing. They were used interchangeably. The Messiah would come and he'd be preceded by somebody like Elijah somebody who would call out into the wilderness. Some people believed actually Elijah himself would come back from the dead and Elijah himself would precede the Messiah. Some thought it would be someone like Elijah and this Elijah person would anoint the Messiah. And so you can understand the importance of John the Baptist, right? You can understand the importance of the baptism of Christ and the fulfillment of that prophecy, yeah? All the world powers, it was believed and prophesied, would unite against the Christ, against the Messiah, and then God's people would gather around the Christ. The Messiah would take the field and make war against all who stood against him. Then the Messiah would renovate Jerusalem or create a new Jerusalem. And all the Jews who had been dispersed and scattered all of this time by all of these different peoples would be gathered into this new Jerusalem. And in the end, the Gentiles would be destroyed. The Jews would be set high. The Messiah would rule. Peace would reign. And even the dead Israelites would, would rise and join them in this new Jerusalem. This was the prophecy and the understanding of what Messiah would bring. For hundreds of years and generations and generations, this had been passed from father to son and daughter, mother to daughter. This is what they believed Messiah would be. So as the disciples followed Jesus, as Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And then he looked at his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter stood up and said, you're the Messiah. He was right. But he's also wrong. Because Jesus isn't that Messiah, is he? 
Oh, he's the Messiah. He is the Christ. But he comes with a cross and not a sword. Right? So Jesus says, don't tell anybody what you know. Because he needs them to understand what it means to be Messiah. Which helps us understand this next passage. Okay? So pick it up here in verse 31. Jesus, he then began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Let's pause there. This is why Peter rebukes Jesus. This is why. Because Peter has believed his whole life. So was his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather and as many generations as Peter has ever known that this conquering hero of a Christ was going to come back and that all the Jews would gather around him and do battle against all the forces that have ever hurt the Jewish people and that the world would be made right because all those that had ever hurt God's people would be stomped out, new Jerusalem would be created, the Jews would rule, the Messiah over them. Peace would reign because all of God's enemies would be gone. And here Jesus is saying, actually, it's the religious system that will kill me, that will kill the Messiah. Peter's saying, no, you have got this all wrong. No. And so Peter rebukes the Messiah because Peter is convinced that Messiah's way is power. The yeast of the Pharisee, the yeast of Herod, power. The very thing that Jesus was tempted with in the wilderness by Satan the way of power. And so what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. For what you are concerned with is human concerns and not the way of God. How hard must it be to hear the echo of the tempter in the mouth of your friend? One of the things that Mark shows us in his writing of the gospel that we don't see maybe as clearly in some of the other gospels is that he says he began to tell them these things plainly. He told them these things plainly about the suffering, the rejection, being killed, rising again. He taught them these things plainly. That's so hard because they miss it, because they miss it. What I wanted to do to connect this to the blind man, though, for you is just to say this. Mark does something I think that's pretty brilliant when he writes this, is that he puts the story of the blind man 
right next to Peter's declaration and rebuke. Because the blind man sees only partially. And Peter sees only partially. And I think we're supposed to notice that. And I think it's easy for us to miss it completely. It is only with the help of Jesus that the blind man sees clearly. And it is only with the help of Jesus that Peter will see clearly. Right? It is only with the help of Jesus that we will see clearly. And I think that we ought to remember that as we read this. Amen? All right, let's finish up here. The way of the cross, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. This is a passage that I think is worth us reading and remembering because it talks about the cost of following Jesus, which I think is something that we can often forget. In, in our modern day living, we, we happen to be lucky enough to live when we do, where we do, that much of the cost of living is absent. <laughs> there is a cost of following Jesus. And sometimes we forget it, <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it. Jesus bids us to take up his cross and follow. Jesus bids us to do that but he doesn't bid us to do that without him doing it first. Jesus doesn't ask us to do something that he himself wouldn't also be doing, that he himself hasn't done before we have done it. Jesus guides us and leads the way in what he asks us to do. Part of my prayer, sometimes in front of you, but often not in front of anyone, is often that I can see with clarity the feet of Jesus. And that comes from years of backpacking. When you backpack in a line of people, sometimes, especially at nighttime, all you can see is the feet of the person in front of you, right? And that's often a visual that I have in my mind as I'm praying, is that as I think about following Jesus, is that I can just see Jesus' feet in front of me. I don't always have to see where the trail is going. I don't have to see the end of the trail or the final destination. If I can just see where his steps are in front of me, then I know where I need to go. Jesus is not asking me to do something he has not done himself when he asks me to take up my cross and follow him. That is something that is worth us remembering. When he warns us about the cost of following him, it is not because he hasn't been there. When he warns us about the suffering, it's not because he hasn't been there. So when you walk into that place, know full well 
you are in good company in that place. When Jesus says, whoever seeks to save his life shall lose it, something that sticks with me is considering what my life is worth. And it's something that I think we all should often consider. It's not to say that our lives aren't worth a lot because they are. Our lives are worth worth much. But sometimes we can seek to save something and in doing so, lose it. A talent is like that. When you use a talent that God has given you, it gets stronger, it gets better, right? Um, You exercise that talent, you get better at the thing you're doing. But if you have a talent and you never use it, it sort of goes to waste. Your life is a lot like that too. There's a, there's a story about a guy named Telemachus. He lived about 350 years after Jesus. He was what we would call a desert father. He was a monk that lived in the desert alone. And he did that for most of his life. He felt called by God to do that. He wanted to devote his life to God to be a monk. So he would spend time in prayer and study and reading. And that is the life that he lived. But the longer that he did that, the more discomfort that he felt. To the point where eventually he felt like if he didn't stop doing that, his life would be a waste. And so the more he prayed the more he felt by God that he was to go to Rome. So he begged and borrowed his way across the known world at the time to get himself to Rome. By the time he got to Rome, it was the 390s. Rome was Christian by then, or at least it was a Christian state by then in name. One of the things that was still going on in Rome at the time was the gladiator games. And if a Christian was arrested for some reason or another, they were still forced to fight in the gladiator games. Though Christianity wasn't outlawed, but if for some reason a Christian was arrested, they would be forced to fight. Telemachus made his way across the city of Rome, got to the gladiatorial arena, and found these Christian men fighting in the gladiatorial games. Not refusing to fight, but instead picking up the sword or the axe and engaging in these battles. Killing one another. Killing their fellow Christians. Telemachus was moved and could not restrain himself. From the side, he began to shout at the gladiators who ignored him. And so he leapt over the side of the wall ran into the arena between the gladiators and tried to get them to stop. The crowd shouted, threw things from the seats at him, pelting him. He yelled at the gladiators, you are Christians. How can you do this? Stop doing this. You mustn't do this. And the gladiators killed him. Struck him down right there in the sand. The emperor at the time halted the games. 
this holy man from who knows where, lying dead on the sand of the arena. He didn't know what to make of it. But the gladiatorial games were ended forever. In that moment, in 395. Telemachus's life was oddly worth more dead than alive in that moment. Now, I'm not saying that anyone sitting here, your life is not worth living. But each of us need to consider what God has called us to, what the cost might be that's associated with that, and if we are truly willing to follow the thing that God has called us to. If you want to save your life, you might lose it. But if you want to follow God and the thing he's called you to, you might end up giving up your life. That's the honest truth. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul, Jesus says. And in the world that we live in today, I think this is a very real possibility. The very real possibility that many of us could already be there on a regular and daily basis. That our soul could very much be in jeopardy because of all that we have access to on such a regular basis. That we sacrifice honor for profit. That we sacrifice principle for popularity. That we sacrifice lasting things for cheap things or that we sacrifice eternity for the moment. This is the world that we live in right now. Whether it's clicks or likes or it's a snapshot or it is lives or whatever it might be. This is the world we live in. How might we make sure that we choose the eternal things over the temporary things? How might we make sure that we are choosing Christ over what is now and right in front of us? It does us no good to gain the world but lose the very thing that God has breathed into us. There is a cost to following Jesus. Of this we know. Of this we must be honest. If we're not honest about that very thing, it will be easy for us to walk down a path and not even realize we've done it. As we leave this place today, as we break bread together downstairs, one of the things that I want to encourage you in is to consider the cost of following Jesus. Some of the cost of following Jesus is a wonderful thing. One of those things is fellowship together. That's a cost. You're going to choose to fellowship together downstairs today rather than not, rather than choose solitude rather than go choose to do fast food somewhere by yourself, rather than choose to go do, I don't know, something that you might do alone. You give up that for this. And that's what we're talking about. Following Jesus is giving up this for that. They're not all negative. Some of them are really, really positive. 
So today, as we leave this place, part of the cost of following Jesus is community. That is a good thing. That is a wonderful thing. That is a gift. Are you with me? Then let's embrace the cost of following Jesus. But let's not forget that there is still a cost for following Jesus. Let's pray. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.